Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld, by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney, and Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. Think of your childhood Siddharim, and you've gone through a long Magid, and you feel like you're actually at the meal, and all of a sudden Rabban Gamliel just shows up and says, Wait a second. Anyone who has not mentioned Pesach, Matzah, or Maror has not fulfilled their obligation for Pesach. And you're thinking to yourself, haven't we mentioned all the things that need to be mentioned on Pesach night? Can I just please have my dinner, right? It's the moment where your hunger is most intense, particularly if you're in a family like I was growing up that didn't have abundant snacks between the beginning of the, uh, of the Seder until then. Uh, and it turns out that our ancestors who created the structure of the Seder were hungry as well because Petzach, Matzah, and Mor, that trio, were spoken about not just because they were the symbols of the holiday, but that was their meal. Right? Their meal was Pesach, the, the, the Pesach offering, eaten on matzah with maror, al-matzot umororim yochluhu, the Torah says. You're supposed to eat the offering on matzah with maror. Not ours, obviously, specifically not ours. Even for non-vegetarians, Ashkenazim generally do not eat lamb at Pesach, right? Maybe brisket or something like that. Some Sephardim do, but even the Sephardim who do make it very clear that what they're eating is lamb and they're not eating Pesach because Pesach was a sacrifice offered only at the temple. We have relics and remnants and reminders. We have our matzah, we have our maror, and we have our shank bone. What it isn't, is a Pesach offering. We have the Zroah, not the Pesach. And we know the word game, right? We know that the holiday called Pesach, which in English is called Passover, is because the Hebrew root lifsoach, from which we get Pesach, means to pass over. And we know the story. That's when the smiting happened. When the smiting happened on Exodus night, somehow all the smiting, Pasach Aleinu, passed over us uh, and uh, spared the Jewish homes from the awfulness of the 10th plague. I was discussing this with my dear friend and colleague and teacher, Rabbi Barry Dovkatz, this annual question of why did we get spared that night and how did we get spared that night? Why? God loved us and God wanted us to be free and God wanted the Egyptians to pay the price for enslaving us. How? Did we get passed over? This strange and wonderful story of the Malach HaMavid, the angel of death, depending on which image you have, if you have a Cecil B. DeMille image of it, it's that green smoky stuff going through Egypt, or if you have a Prince of Egypt uh, image of it, it's a different, different scene. But somehow the Malach HaMavid comes into Egypt and somehow knows the distinction between the Jewish homes in Goshen and the Egyptians' homes in the area. And somehow they needed a sign the angel of death needed a sign to know which houses were which. A messenger sent by God needed a GPS. What's going on with the blood of that Pesach offering on our lintels? Rabbi Nathan Laufer writes the following. He says, Rabban Gamliel explains that we ate the Pesach sacrifice in the temple times because God passed over Pesach, the houses of the Jewish people, when God smote the Egyptian firstborn. But why did God pass over the Jewish houses and redeem the Jewish people from Egypt the next day? Because the head of every Jewish household had the courage to set aside 
and slaughter a sheep, which was worshipped by the Egyptians as a god. Then, in an act of brave defiance towards their former taskmasters, the Jews painted their doorways with the very blood of the slaughtered sheep, the blood of their oppressor's idol. Every Jewish household engaging in this ritual demonstrated that they would henceforth be engaged in serving God rather than serving Pharaoh and their former Egyptian masters. Because of the courage of the Jewish people, did God hover over the Jewish homes and spare their firstborn while striking the Egyptian firstborn, end quote. According to this read, which I love, what's going on in that scene is not magic, but more like Nachshon, the Midrash of Nachshon being the one to step first into the sea a week later, only, af- only after which the sea split open. God needed to see the Israelites' courage before God brought divine power. We had to earn that redemption that night. This was not a, um, a, a messenger sent by God giving redemption for free. We had to earn it by spurning and sticking the thumb in our oppressors with courage. In the words of Rabbi Katz, Pesach, the sacrifice, is not just a culinary choice. It is an act of defiance, or I would add, it's a relic of an act of defiance. So our shank bone is not just a remnant of a sacrifice that we don't do anymore, but a relic of bravery and a push for us to replicate it, to stick a thumb in the eye of the oppressors of today. I grew up in the era of the Russian refusenik story. I twinned my bar mitzvah with a Russian refusenik. My parents went to Russia undercover with cloak and daggers in the late 80s to visit refusniks. Um, I went to the March on Washington in 1987 or in 1988, whenever it was. And I grew up with Anatoly Natan Sharansky's name and story deep in my consciousness. And I really never thought as a child that he would be free. I really thought it was a total pipe dream. And when he was freed, it was a moment of tremendous Jewish pride and celebration for me. And I don't know if you recall this moment, the, the, the moment that he marched across from his KGB captors across some bridge where he was going to be collected. I don't remember if it was from Americans or there was an intermediate, the Germans or Israelis. I don't remember the specifics of it. But I remember what it looked like. Natan Sharansky, having been in the gulag, having endured what should not be endurable, instead of walking straight across the bridge, he zigzagged. He, he, he made a, a weird meandering walk across the bridge. And he was asked afterwards why he did that. And he said, it's emotional to, for me to say, because the KGB officers who were in their last moments of owning me said, walk straight. And I decided not to. I decided to do the exact opposite of what my oppressors asked me to do. He was about to be free, and he was still exhibiting courage. I want to share with you another story of courage in this vein of reconsidering the Pesach offering to be a moment of courage. And this is a story that's not very well known. In 1939, a man by the name of Gilberto Basques was named Mexico's consul general in Paris. And on a level probably dwarfing what Oscar Schindler did and what Raoul Wallenberg did, he saved, and, and uh, he ended up saving an enormous number of Jews. His specific goal, before he decided to exhibit all this bravery, was to save Mexican citizens who were trapped in a war zone. But he went beyond that. 
He saw the desperation of those trying to escape the Nazis, and he felt that he had to help. He convinced the Mexican president, Cardenas, to bring refugees to Mexico and to give them instant citizenship. He rented two castles in Marseille. He planted a Mexican flag on those castles, saying this is Mexican territory. He kept refugees there. He fed refugees there, some of them having been recently rescued from concentration camps and safe houses around the area. He convinced the Mexican government to send on their own dime ships across the Atlantic to the coast to pick them up and to bring them to Mexico. And by some accounts, he saved 40,000 Jews from um, what would have been obvious and unavoidable elimination. We have a significant number of Jews in the Temple Beth Am community who are of Mexican descent, and it may be that some of them or their relatives are alive or were alive because of this unspoken of hero. He paid a price, as many acts of courage force you to do. Courage does not always give you an instant reward. In 1942, German forces occupied the Mexican consulate, arrested any of the refugees who were being held there, confiscated documents and property, and specifically the property of Mr. Bosks and his family. German submarines destroyed Mexican tankers that were transporting oil to the United States, and in response, Mexico declared war on the Axis powers, which means that the country of Mexico was brought into World War II significantly because of the act of the heroism of this consul general in Paris. Otherwise, they would have been on the sidelines. At this point, Mr. Bosks, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and his family became prisoners of war. It was not until 1943 that Mr. Bosks was freed and returned to Mexico, where he was received as a hero by the refugees he had saved. The shank bone that we're going to confront tonight, that Rabban Gamliel says we must discuss before we eat, no matter how hungry we are, is not a roasted delicacy. It's a reminder that in Egypt, on the night of Exodus, we were slaves, and we were afraid, and we were courageous. We were Sharansky, and he was us. We were Gilberto Basques, and he was us. And so the question I ask of you, and of myself tonight as we approach this holiday is what is your act of courage today? You don't need to save 40,000 people from extermination to stand up in the face of oppressors. Who are the heroes of our generation who slaughter the idols of the oppressors, whom we must admire, whose stories we must tell, whom we must live, lift up and whom we are obligated to emulate. Think about that when Rabban Gamliel reminds us to tonight. Yeah, we're going to switch up the, the format just a little bit and go into a meditative place, but I'll set up the meditation um, with a vort so that those of you who are not uh, meditators by nature, or even those of you who are, have a little bit of Torah to bring to your Seder table tonight or tomorrow or both. So Rabbi Klickfeld set us up with the idea of Pesach. And now we'll go to the second of Rabbi Gamliel's triplicate of required mentions for the Seder table, which is matzah. The thing about the matzah at the Seder table that begs a question, as so many things on the Seder table beg questions purposefully, is why three? Why three matzot? 
There is nowhere in any of our Talmuds, that's right, there are multiple Talmuds, um, there's nowhere in any of the Talmuds that say, that says that there should be three matzot on the Seder table. In fact, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, explicitly says that we should have two matzot on the table. Um, What emerges over time in the conversation of our rabbis is that there is an idea of an extra matzah. So the third matzah is considered to be extra that's placed among these two initial kikarot that are our matzot for the meal. And it's there to be broken. It's meant to be broken. It's put there to be broken. The saying is brought by Rav Papa. He says, Everybody agrees that on Pesach you put one in there and you break it in the middle. But there's no single agreement as to why that piece of matzah is put in there to be broken. Why break it? So like a good object on the Seder table, starting from the Mishnah and Tosefta layer of our rabbinic conversation, it's there to beg more questions. I'm going to take us into this meditative place from an idea that I found in the Orchot Chaim Pesach, which is that this broken piece of matzah is a zecher likriyat yamsuf. It's a remembrance of the tearing open of the sea, the splitting of the sea. That's what the yachatz, the breaking, is. So that's the place that I'm taking us to. I want to invite you to take yourself physically into a place that I've learned, and to use the language of, um, thanks to Rabbi Klickfall, a poised rest. So I want you to find a place of comfort and get yourself settled, both your body and your breath. Settle into your chair or whatever space you may find yourself in. Settle the palms of your feet and the palms of your hand, whether up or down. Settle your breath within yourself. Let it slow. Settle your shoulders. Everything else will follow. Settle your mind. As I said yesterday at Kabbalat Shabbat, this Shabbat Hagadol did not ask to be samuch to Pesach. It didn't ask to be rushed. Let the Shabbatiness of this Shabbat rest you. Settle into this Shabbat for just a moment. Don't rush. Let your breath be. I want you to find yourself in that settled place beneath the cover of the matzah. Maybe you have a special matzah cover. Maybe you wash one of your challah covers and use that to cover up those three matzot. What will you use this year? Think to that. Are they special matzot? Is your family a Yehuda matzah user family? Or Manashevitz? Did you get special Shmora matzah? 
Did you bake soft matzah with Aaron Asher in one of our programs? What's under your cover? Picture it. Be there. Get to your Seder table. And settle yourself. Among the kikarot. So many things this year have made us pessimistic. We've begun to put our place and our lot with the impossible. We've begun to imagine that there are so many things that will not happen. It's very easy for us to think that the things that we wish will come to fruition will not. Because so many things that we hoped would happen when we sat at the Seder table last year did not in this year. I want you to crack that matzah in your mind and imagine that just as the sea split, something great is possible. What do you want? What do you need to happen in this next year? And I want you to believe it can happen. It could happen. It might happen. Sit with that yachatz. Break that possibility open. that what happens this year is that when you hide that big piece that comes off of the matzah, that you wind up finding it and having a sweet afikoman uh, as your as your tafun, as your dessert. So we're at Maror. We've heard at Pesach and matzah. And when I was thinking about Maror specifically, I was struck that 
I can't, in an Ashkenazi Seder, I can't think of another thing that we do that makes us feel like we were slaves in Egypt. At a Sephardic Seder, you might hit each other with scallions or leeks. At an Ashkenazi Seder, maror is the one thing that we eat that actually makes us have a feeling. The other things are experiential moments, right? Like karpas or charoset or things that are now symbols of an experience that we then do to remember that experience. But maror is the only thing that we eat that actually is supposed to make us feel the way that we felt as slaves in Egypt when going through the Exodus. And I started to wonder why that was so interesting to me. I love Pesach. I love Pesach for the fact that it allows us to ask questions. I love Pesach because it is something that not only asks us to remember, but gives us tools how. And I love Pesach because it doesn't, it doesn't tell us that we have to be who we are in the moment. In fact, it tells us that we need to recall who we once were. I'm a really terrible actress. <laughs> and one of the reasons for being a terrible actress is because I always have a very hard time trying to convey someone else or something else. And yet on Pesach, we are asked not to just show up as Rebecca Schatz, but we're asked to show up as Rebecca Schatz during the time of the Exodus. And so Maror helps us get to that moment because it allows us to taste something that is spicy, that is sharp, that potentially makes us tear up or clears our sinuses and reminds us that that was supposed to be the kind of pain, the kind of struggle that we felt when we were slaves. But how can we bring back a moment of feeling enslaved during a Seder that's supposed to bring us such joy for our freedom? Why bring back those moments of pain and of bitterness if now we're supposed to be in a moment of redemption. So the Svanemet actually says this in the words of his grandfather, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir of Ger, who poses this rhetorical question, why do we eat bitter herbs? The answer he suggests is that feeling pain, or bitterness in this case, is actually a sign of redemption that you can only know the feeling of pain once you've also known the feeling of redemption. Just feeling the bitterness was itself the first glimmer of, of freedom. Indeed, the worst slavery is when we grow so accustomed to it that we accommodate ourselves to it. So maybe the reason that we eat maror is not just so that we can feel that bitterness that sharpness that was slavery, that was being enslaved. But maybe it's that we're actually celebrating our freedom, that we know that in this moment, we, and that doesn't go for everybody, unfortunately, but we around the Seder table this evening or tomorrow night, feel as though because we know what freedom tastes like, we also can now know what slavery and what being shackled tastes like. Rabbi Nathan Laufer, who Rabbi Klickfeld also mentioned earlier in, in his little vort on Pesach, says that Rabban Gamliel 
asks, why do the Jews eat maror, bitter herbs, at the Passover Seder? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Rabbi Nathan Laufer is saying, Rabbi Gamliel, why do the Jews eat maror, bitter herbs, at the Passover Seder? He then answers his own question and says, because the Jewish people had the fortitude to remain a distinct people in Egypt and to keep up their hope despite the ex excruciatingly bitter lives, symbolized by the mar maror that they led in Egypt. Because of their collective resilience and hope were the Jewish people redeemed from Egypt. So this is another way of thinking about the maror, again, in a redemptive way, even though we're supposed to feel while eating it that we can imagine and experience the slavery. But that this was a way for the Jewish people to find that strength, that collective resilience, he says, that as a people, they were redeemed. It wasn't just that Moshe was allowed to be redeemed or Moshe and Aaron. As a people, they came together and they were able to be redeemed. So why do we eat the maror? We eat it to remind us that we all went through this experience together, but that because we went through ex the experience together, we were redeemed together. So I hope that tonight and tomorrow night when you're eating the maror, that you don't just think about the fact that it's sharp, that it's bitter, that you struggled through slavery and that's what you are feeling and tasting, but rather that we are lucky to be able to have the opportunity to taste the maror. That we're lucky to be able to put ourselves in a situation of knowing what that bitterness might have been because it is the opposite of how we feel while we are taking in the maror. For those in the world who are still enslaved or who are still living bitter lives, if they were to eat the maror at their Passover Seder, it wouldn't symbolize anything different than the lives that they are living. But if we, a free people, both in religion and in the, the country that we live in, if we are able to eat that maror and truly feel the pain that we felt as slaves, there's something joyous in being able to recognize that that's because, in fact, we are free. I hope that that maror tastes bitter to you, but that through it, you're able to enjoy your Seder as a free people. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.